Holy Spirit, as you know, I am tired tonight. And I sense that many of us are. It's midweek, Lord. Wednesday night, it's cold, it's raining outside. Great night for a couch, a blanket, and a pillow. But Father, we are here, gathered in this barn, because we sense there is something better. And we know, Lord, there is more. And I pray, Father, for the Comforter to come tonight, Your Holy Spirit. I ask in the next few minutes, however long we spend now in Your Word, Lord, that You would keep our minds sharp and fresh and refreshed, Lord, even as we hear from You. I pray for insight, inspiration, revelation, Father. And I ask, Lord, for Your energy, for all of us to stay together in this and not to miss a single thing that You have for us tonight. Lord, I realize what You have for each of us may even be different, and that's okay. But I pray, Lord, You'll bring Your Word to us, grounded in truth, free us by Your grace, and may we hear from You in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 1. Now I know we covered this on Sunday. There are a few things that I want to go back and and double-check, point out. So I'm going to read through chapter 1 quickly, point some things out. We'll move on to chapter 2 in a few minutes. Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Hislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Not a good report. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments or the statutes or the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere or fear your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. We need a wall. We need a wall. That's what the people might have said. Those who were living in broken down, distressed, unprotected Jerusalem. The holy city was in such disrepair, it was literally a reproach. And it desperately needed rebuilding. 
Now you're going to see as we study through the book of Nehemiah, a division here. Chapters 1 through 6 are all about the rebuilding of the wall. That's the focus. Get the wall up. Rehang the gates. Repair, rebuild, restore the wall. That strength, that protection, that symbol of the might of God that surrounds Jerusalem. Chapters 7 through 13 shifts and now we will be looking at, or then we will be looking at, rebuilding and restoring the people. It's it's divided similar to the book of Ezra. The first half about rebuilding the temple and the second half about rebuilding the people. Well, now we're back to rebuilding again, but it's the wall around Jerusalem and then it will be about rebuilding and restoring the people. As we said Sunday, the book of Nehemiah is a troubleshooter's guide for the everyman. But it's a guide for rebuilding. It's a good book to go to if you're living with a broken down life. Or if you know somebody who is broken down and hurting. There's so much in this book that can help in that process. Now Nehemiah, as we know, he's that everyman. Not a prince. He's not a priest. He's just a cupbearer. But as Les shared a few moments ago, my how this cupbearer could pray. This common civil servant was a true man of God and called by God, I believe, because he was a man of prayer. It's in those times of prayer, that sweet hour of prayer, that we hear from the Lord, that we gain calling. Now, Nehemiah could be anyone. Any one of us could be the Nehemiah God is about to call right here in the Bridge Fellowship. He's every man. But Nehemiah has an unmistakable confidence. In fact, if I was going to give a title to our study tonight, it would be the cupbearer's confidence. Where does this confidence come from? Confidence to step up before King Artaxerxes. Confidence to head back to Jerusalem. Confidence to inspect and check out the wall. And then confidence to go before all the people, including Ezra the priest, who by the way is still there, and say, we need to get moving. Let's rebuild. Let's work together. Where does this confidence come from? Well, it comes from Nehemiah's namesake. Remember Nehemiah, which means comforter of Yahweh. The confidence comes from the comforter. The confidence comes from the helper. Our confidence in Christ Jesus as believers today comes from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ within us gives us a strength and a confidence and an ability to live out the life that God's called us to, a life worthy of our calling... Because of His Spirit. It's an amazing thing. And we do not function without the Spirit of God. When we try to, we don't succeed. But if we're listening to the Spirit, walking with the Spirit of the living God, we have the confidence of the cupbearer. Now as the book of Nehemiah begins, again, the downed wall in Jerusalem is a source of reproach and distress for a downed people in Judah. If you look at verse 3, they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. By the way, the word distress, same word that's used in Daniel 9.25 that we're going to reference later on. Where the prophet says that Jerusalem will be rebuilt during days of distress. It was a distressing, difficult, hard time to live in Judah, especially to live in Jerusalem. And there was a reproach. All the nations around were making fun, in essence, of the Jews who had returned. They're laughing at them. They're ridiculing them. That ridicule will reach a pinnacle in the book of Nehemiah. As the enemies try to tear them down, they simply do it by making fun of them. And that's often how the enemy will work. 
Ezra chapter 9, verse 9, Ezra had written, Our God has not forsaken us. He's extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. We need a wall. Oh, the temple was rebuilt, but the wall was still down. We need a wall. The wall. Nehemiah's wall, you could call it. It's a wall of great significance. And in fact, like the remnant of Israel, we need a wall. You need a wall. I need a wall. Not something to hide behind. But something to strengthen us. And encourage us. And protect us from the reproach of the enemy. We need a wall. Psalm 139, verse 5. The psalmist writes, and this is wonderful. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I, I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? The comforter, Nehemiah, goes back to build the wall. The Holy Spirit builds the wall in your life, in my life. The Holy Spirit constructs the wall that hems me in behind and before. He encloses me. Now, before we continue on in Nehemiah, I want to expand with something that I shared on Sunday. And the importance of the wall that the Holy Spirit builds, especially in one specific area of our lives. Genesis 1.27 tells us God created man in His own image. You recall the verse, In the image of God He created him. Not just man, but male and female He created them. So man and woman, God was careful to point that out, are created in the image of God. In the image of God. And we've got to think about that. What does that mean? Does that mean He looks like we look? Well, no. The Lord Jesus said God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not a fleshly thing. It's not that God has the head, the shoulders, and the arms, and the legs, and walks around. It's not like that. No, He did in Jesus. He put on flesh. But made in the image of God means that somehow we are like God. And I suggest to you, and I did on Sunday, one of those ways is in the triune nature of our God. God is Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the same way you and I are Trinity. We are triune. We have, well, let me just read this to you, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. The Apostle Paul says, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. Entirely. Completely. Well, how, Paul? May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, soul, body. The triune nature of every man and woman on the face of the planet, in the image of God. We are spirit, soul, and body. The books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther point something out that's just marvelous. We see the Holy Spirit, at least types of the Holy Spirit, in all three books, if not the work of the Holy Spirit, in all three books. In the book of Ezra, as we just finished studying, we see Ezra building Jerusalem's temple. Well, the temple is a picture of our our spirit. The spirit of man. Don't you know that your, your body is the temple of the Lord and the Holy Spirit dwells within and the temple in Jerusalem, the heart of Jerusalem, is a picture of the heart of man, the spirit of each of us. The book of Ezra, very much a picture of the Spirit's work on our spirit, our temple. 
John 3, verse 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, listen, when you come to Jesus Christ, when you give your life over to Him, when you are born again, your Spirit... The spirit man, the spirit woman within you goes through a complete renewal, a transformation. Your spirit in you, the true you, is eternally changed. The Bible tells us that He gives us His spirit as a pledge, that His spirit is a seal of our spirits eternally. You instantaneously step into that place of being the eternal being that God calls you to be in your spirit. Your spirit is eternal, changed, washed, born again, renewed, refreshed. And some might say, well, why don't I feel that more tangibly? I can say that right now tonight. Why did my spirit was renewed? Why don't I feel renewed tonight? Well, the book of Esther comes along, which we will get to in December probably. Esther, speaking of that physical protection of the people outside of the land, the spirit's work in our bodies. The spirit renews us in our spirits. That's a wonderful truth that's occurred. But our bodies are still our bodies. And the Spirit now comes and works on our... I I truly believe this works on our bodies. Let me give you a chapter and verse to to back that up. 2 Corinthians... 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 7. Let me back up to verse 6. Paul's writing and he says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness... He's the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's shown into our spirits. He's given us something wonderful, something marvelous, a true treasure. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Our spirit, alive, renewed, refreshed, changed, made eternal, sealed for salvation. Our bodies decaying, wearing, exhausted, worked every day. Down in verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. I think it was Gail Irwin who was the first to say, As long as the Lord has a purpose for your life, you are invincible. But the moment that purpose is fulfilled, a hangnail will kill you. (laughs) I like that. I am here as long as the Lord needs me to be here. Especially if I'm, if I'm walking in the Spirit, man, it's His call. My call home, that is completely up to Him. Once I have fulfilled what God has called me to fulfill in my life, I could get a bad hangnail. My hand get gangrenous, my arm fall off, and I die. Okay. We have the inner man, the Spirit, sealed, sanctified, renewed when we're born again. We have the outer man, the body, who though wasting away is protected by the Spirit of God until we say like Jesus said. Remember what He said? The last words out of His mouth on the cross. What did He say? It is finished. Teleos in the Greek. 
Complete. Done. Finished. And he bowed his head, John 19.30, and gave up his spirit. Until that moment, the spirit protects our bodies. This is why Les and I were praying for each other. Lord, just for rest, quietness, and, and some easing up of the schedule. Because the Spirit will protect your body. Don't be afraid to ask the Holy Spirit of the living God, could you give me some refreshment physically because I'm just worn out here. Or I'm sick, I need healing. The Spirit works in our bodies. We see that in the book of Esther. Spirit of God at work protecting the people of Israel. Outside of Jerusalem, outside, not where the temple, that picture of the Spirit is, not where the wall is, but outside, protecting the body. Nehemiah. Nehemiah is that story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall. And my friends, you're going to see this. The picture of the Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's work in our and on our and around our souls. So said very easily, Ezra, picture of the Spirit of man and how the Holy Spirit works in our spirit. Esther, a picture of physical protection. The Spirit's work on our body. And Nehemiah, the Spirit's work on our souls. Now the soul... And this could be confusing for some because you would say, well, isn't the soul and the spirit the same thing? Not biblically. They're defined differently. The soul is the seat of reason. It's the intellect. It's our personalities. It's it's the place, honestly, where we most need a wall. (laughs) We most need a wall of protection and strength and encouragement around the soul. What do you mean? As with the book of Nehemiah. The soul is the place where there is the most ruin and the most debris. The soul is the place of distress in our lives. It's the place where reproach is most keenly felt. You know, the enemy can kill the body. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Big deal. And Jesus can say that, having been resurrected. (laughs) He has a right to say, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. You You fear those, or Him, who can take both body and soul and destroy them in hell. That, that's something to be afraid of. But don't fear those who kill the body. Big deal. And, and I feel that way. I'm like, enemy, bring it on. Take your best shot. If God wants me here, you're not going to be able to do anything to my body. And if He's done with me and wants me home, great, I'm going. Not a big deal. My hope is eternal. The enemy can't get to my spirit. Listen to me on this. The enemy can't get to my spirit. It's signed and sealed and ready for delivery for my salvation. My spirit is protected. When Jesus says, My Father holds them in His hand and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand, He's talking about my spirit. It's who I really am. Protected eternally. But my soul, gang, my soul is vulnerable. My soul is the place of greatest struggle and attack. And I need a wall. I need to be hemmed in behind and before because the soul is a place that gets, gets gummed up with, with things like worldly thinking. What one pastor called stinking thinking. You know? It's just processing and, and, and strategizing and thinking like the world. The soul is the place where doubt creeps in. The soul is the place that I get discouraged. The soul is the place where I feel distressed. Someone ridicules me, I feel it in my soul. Oh, I may be able to shake it off in public, but I go home and I'm thinking about it. I'm working it through. Were they right? What they said? How they said it? And my soul is the place where attack comes. I need a wall. My soul 
needs that constant washing, that daily renewal. That's why prayer and the Word are so absolutely vital, my friends. They keep the soul open to the flow and washing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.26 Christ sanctifies the church by the washing with the water of water with the Word. Paul says in Romans 12 verse 2 Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, my spirit's been renewed. It's ready to go. My body's wasting away. It's ready to go too. But my soul needs constant renewal. When Les says, we've been saved, we need to be saved some more, you know what I believe, I, I can ask you, I think he's talking about the soul. Needs constant renewal. Constant washing. Clearing out of the junk of the world and the distress that comes and the reproach of those around me. And the Holy Spirit is the means by which Jesus sanctifies us, renews us, and enfolds us, building that wall around us. I need a wall around my spirit, man. I need a wall around my soul, a wall around my body. The book of Nehemiah portrays this aspect of the Holy Spirit's work. Building the wall of protection and security around the spirit man. Now back in the book of Nehemiah, two primary areas that we're going to consider tonight... We're going to look at, and I'm going to give you several things to jot down as we go through the whole study here. The work of the Holy Spirit. I originally intended to get through three chapters. We won't. We're just going to get barely get through chapter 2, and we'll save chapter 3 for either Sunday or next week. But we're going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to also see a wonderful decree. The work of the Holy Spirit, the wonderful decree. So first, the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you 10 or 11 things to jot down as we walk through. Let me quickly point out two or three things. Three things still here in chapter 1. Verse 4. After they tell him about the broken down wall, Nehemiah says, When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Contained in that verse, something we saw in Ezra before, we see in Nehemiah now, and we see the picture of Nehemiah the Comforter. We see this about the Holy Spirit. Number one, the work of the Spirit includes both grieving and interceding. Well, I know this, Rick. I know you do. I just want to stir you up by way of reminder. The work of the Spirit includes both grieving and interceding. Two things the Holy Spirit does. You're going to see several tonight. Two that He does. Very specifically, He grieves and He intercedes. Just as we see in Nehemiah, Nehemiah, comforter of Yahweh, we see Him grieving and interceding. Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He can be, as we talked about, He can be, He is grieved. Not at us, but He's grieved for us. He is moved when you're moved. He feels what you feel. And He intercedes on behalf of the saints. Romans 8.26 We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The same heart we saw in Ezra the Helper, we now see in Nehemiah the Comforter. Look on down in verse 8. Interesting, in verse 8, he's praying, and in the middle of the prayer, he says, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, and then he quotes Scripture to God. Which I think is interesting. Nehemiah goes back, and as I shared on Sunday, from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 30, he pulls Scripture and he prays it to God. Remember this, Father. Remember you said this? You remember, Lord, when you said, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments, I'll I'll bring you back? 
Remember, you said that, Lord. Nehemiah prays this, and it reminds me, gang, number two, the work of the Spirit invites remembrance. There's something else the Holy Spirit will do in your life, in my life. He will invite remembrance. John 14, 26, Jesus said, The Comforter will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now you might say, well, okay, Rick, I, I get that. I get what you, Jesus says, but in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is bringing to God's remembrance. <laughs> so how exactly does that work? Uh, he's reminding the Lord, right? Which is not what Jesus said, that the Spirit will remind us of what the Lord said. But here we see Nehemiah reminding the Lord. Let me tell you something awesome. The Spirit will do this. The Spirit will remind you to remind the Lord of His promises. Not because the Lord needs reminding. Understand. Obviously, God knows what He said. God knows what His plan is. But the Spirit invites you, invites me, to remind the Lord of His promises. It's His Word. It's God's will that we are reminded of and called upon to pray back to Him. Some of you have heard it put this way. It's praying the Word. It's taking the Word of God and it's returning it to God and it's praying the Word of God. It's even pulling out a psalm. Maybe the Lord's put a psalm on your heart. You just can't get this psalm out of your mind. You know what? Open it up and pray it. Pray the Word. Pray the Word back to the Father. Romans 8.27 says, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so often the Holy Spirit will speak into your heart something for you to pray back to the Father. Share before, it begins with the Father, it comes to you, to me, and it returns to the Father. We don't originate our prayers. Our prayers originate with the Lord. Come through us and right back to Him. And that's what we're talking about in the work of the Spirit invites remembrance. Now, again, after Nehemiah concludes his prayer, he makes that brief statement at the end of chapter 1. He says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. I was the cupbearer to the king. We know this. We understand. Okay, Nehemiah the cupbearer. Why doesn't he lead off with this? I mean, his pedigree is so weak as it is. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. That's all we get. At least he could have thrown out there, and I was cupbearer to the king. I had the ear of Artaxerxes. You know, I was there in the capital of Persia, in Susa. And I was part of the royal contingent. I mean, he could have drummed up something about this. But rather than plugging his role, he plays down his position. And he almost doesn't mention it at all. We just get it in passing as we slip on into chapter 2. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. You know, where there's an authentic work of the Holy Spirit, he never plugs himself. He plays down his role. Where the Holy Spirit is moving, the emphasis always comes out on Jesus Christ. John 16, 13, Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own initiative, or literally, He will not speak of Himself. He will glorify Me. How do you know if it's a move of the Holy Spirit? The question, I brought this up before, is Jesus glorified there? Is Jesus lifted up there? is the end result, focus on, worship of, talking about Jesus Christ. Then you're one step closer to knowing the Spirit is moving because that's how the Spirit works. Number three, the work of the Spirit inspires the lifting up of Jesus Christ. 
The work of the Spirit inspires the lifting up of Jesus Christ. What does the cupbearer do? I mean, think about it graphically. What did Nehemiah do? He lifted up the cup to the king. He bore that cup before the king. In the same way, the Holy Spirit lifts up Christ and His sacrifice, the cup. The cup which reminds us of the blood. The Spirit will lift up Christ before the king. 1 Corinthians 10.16, Paul says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And so in many ways, Nehemiah, the cupbearer, is the perfect position. It's the perfect occupation. There's a great picture here of the Holy Spirit bearing up Jesus and His sacrifice as the cupbearer bears that cup of wine before the king. You can say, well, it's a coincidence. Hey, there are no coincidences in Scripture. And God called Nehemiah. He looked for and found a prayerful man who also was a cupbearer. And this is the man God called. He had his reasons. It's a beautiful picture. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now we get a little more verse by verse here. It came about in the month of Nisan... In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Remember, Nehemiah's mourning here. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Well, why? Why is Nehemiah afraid? So this king's finds or or detects that he's a little bummed out. What's there to be afraid of? Well, there are a couple possibilities here. One, it's said that in ancient times, and I'm not sure if this was going on in Persia, but it certainly did in some kingdoms, that the cupbearer had to keep a happy face. Had to put on a happy face before the king. Because if he didn't, he could be uh, in danger of capital punishment. Because it would say to the king that this guy is displeased. Displeased with me, displeased with my kingdom, off with his head. Maybe that's why Nehemiah was a little worried. Maybe that's why the first words out of his mouth in verse 3 is, Let the king live forever! (laughs) I don't know about that one. I do know it's a moment of truth for Nehemiah. We see back in verse 11 of chapter 1, he's praying, he says, Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. So he already had it in mind that he needed to go talk to King Artaxerxes. He needed to bring before King Artaxerxes the problem in Jerusalem and see if there was some resolution. He knew he had to do it. My sense is that at this point, Nehemiah is looking for the opportune moment to say, King Artaxerxes, long live the king, blah, blah, blah. I, I need to go back to Jerusalem. So here in the moment of truth, perhaps that's why he's afraid. You know, when the Lord moves you to do something and you're ready and you're raring to go and then the moment comes and you're like, okay, this is it. It's make it or break it time. i got to follow through. But you know, you think the king would have better things to do than to pay attention to the emotional state of his cupbearer. Why does he notice Nehemiah's sorrow? Well, I've given you a couple possibilities. Here's a third one. I suggest to you that it may be because Nehemiah was not characteristically a sorrowful man. That his personality was such that he was a very joyful dude. That he was a happy, that he was a positive guy. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why he was hired on as cupbearer. The cupbearer was there by the king all the time. 
Every time the king had a glass of wine, the cupbearer drank it first, checked it out first, made sure it was okay, and then gave it to the king. So he was there with the king and the queen constantly. You don't want a, a bummer of a guy around like that. If you're going to pick someone who's going to be with you 24-7, you want someone who's enjoyable. Someone who has a, a healthy, happy countenance. And I believe that Nehemiah most likely did. I can't prove it, but I can tell you in this that there's another clearly expressed emotion for the Holy Spirit other than grief. Paul says not to grieve the Spirit. Why? Because, listen, number four, the work of the Spirit imbues joy. The work of the Spirit imbues joy. I-M-B-U-E, the word imbued, simply means permeates. The work of the Holy Spirit will permeate your life with joy. I just, I love this. This is a primary characteristic of a person who is permeated by the Holy Spirit of the living God. You cannot be a moping downer of a person and be walking in the Spirit. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and on down the line. It's the second one on the list. It's the second piece of fruit that's going to start growing off of your body and out of your spirit. Joy. Galatians 5.22, that's the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit grows out of us when Christ's Spirit is implanted in us. Jesus said in John 15.11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. John 16.20 said, Truly, truly. Now, when Jesus says truly twice, we need to listen up. Not only is it one time, truly is twice as truly. Okay, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep. And lament, the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Grief turned into, the Spirit grieves, but the Spirit brings joy. The emotion of the Spirit. And the Spirit is alive. Think about it this way, the Holy Spirit is alive and, and indwelling you. He's going to sense your emotion. He's going to respond to, and He's going to bring out of you His emotion. Which is why when I see things in the world that are contrary to the nature of God, I grieve. The Spirit's grieving in me. Cheryl, just a half an hour before I came down there, she had picked up a brochure in a doctor's office today. And she was reading through it, and it was for teenagers, about their bodies and about you know medical things. And, and she's like, oh, this is kind of nice. Maybe this might be good to, to give the kids or, or talk to with them. And she gets about halfway through and it starts talking about safe sex. And then it starts talking about homosexuality and how natural it is. She handed it to me and she said, look at this. And I took one look at it and I closed it and I said, I don't even, just throw it away. And I grieved. But it wasn't me grieving. It was the Spirit of God grieving within me. The Holy Spirit sees these things and just... But at the same time, oh, there's something marvelous about being together with Christians, being in the Word, worshiping, this joy starts to come out. I'm not even sure where it's from. It's the Holy Spirit. He's joyful and His joy, the fruit of the Spirit, is being seen in me. I don't want to belabor the point, but gang, Jesus prayed to the Father, John 17, 13, Now I come to you, Father. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. The Lord wants us to be a joyful people. Fruit of the Spirit, joy. Well, currently, back to Nehemiah, he's grieving. He's grieving, I think uncharacteristically. In verse 3, 
I, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? This is a bold statement straight to the king. And the king said to me, what would you request? So, that's the first of 50 sows. As I mentioned Sunday, 50 sows in the book of Nehemiah. Those sows moving along. Nehemiah doesn't waste a lot of time with a lot of verbiage. He just, you know, I had this in mind, so I moved. And, and here the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is what I would call prayer on the fly. Or better yet, prayer on the fly of faith. It's short, but it's effective. In that moment, he prays quickly, but faithfully. There are other examples I could give you a few in Scripture. One that came to mind was Peter, Peter on, the, on the Sea of Galilee. Remember when he walked out to see Jesus walking on the water? And he's doing great until he takes his eyes off Jesus. What does he pray? Lord, save me! That's all it was. One of the shortest prayers in Scripture right there. And he prayed to the only Savior who happened to be nearby at the time. <laughs> Jesus reaches out and grabs him and pulls him out of the water. I think about the thief on the cross hanging up there dying beside Jesus. He knows his life is maybe, maybe a couple, maybe three days of agony on that cross before he dies. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? See, the thief looked around and he found the only Savior present at the time as well. Jesus prayed a short, quick prayer. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, understand this. James says, James 5.16, in the King James, I like the, the reading of this, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Gets the job done. But long prayers are not necessarily strong prayers. Okay, Prayers of length are not necessarily prayers of strength. Not that we shouldn't pray long. The reality is the real reason for long prayers is because I want to linger with Jesus. It's like getting into that great conversation and you just don't want to stop. And as Les says, so, so we unhook for now. And we'll, we'll get back together. And, and that's the, the end of a prayer. That, that should be the way it feels. Well, I'm just, Lord, i got it. You know, the kids and dinner. And the, so i got to unhook right now. But to my mind, that's the reason for a long prayer. A long prayer is, is never for the reason of impressing God. I'm going to stay with this for an hour, God, because I want you to see how spiritual I am. Or, worse yet, improving our religious stature before man. Boy, that guy, when he starts praying, I know we're in for the long haul. It kills me. I know he's spiritual, but it kills me. Long prayers are not strong prayers. Jesus says in Matthew 6-7, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. They suppose they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So Peter says, Lord, save me. So the thief says, remember me. So Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven and immediately turns around in verse 5 and said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city, that is Jerusalem, of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild this. Notice this. Nehemiah, Nehemiah could, could have asked for anything. The king says, what do you want, Nehemiah? What, what can I do to, to lift your spirit a little bit? Well, can I have another sip of that wine? That might, he could have asked for anything. Could you increase my salary? 
Artaxerxes, or, you know, could I have that condo right out there on the Euphrates? That would be nice. Or anything in the world. And he asked to be sent to Jerusalem. Which reminds us, where was the Spirit sent by the King? By King Jesus. Where was the Spirit sent to begin the work of rebuilding broken lives? The Spirit was sent to Jerusalem. That's the fifth thing to note. The work of the Spirit initiated in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1 verse 4, Gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which He said, You've heard from Me, for John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It all began there in Jerusalem. Now what are you doing, Rick? I'm painting a picture for you here. Well, I'm not painting it. The Word is painting it. Almost every verse as we go through, you see a connection. You see a picture painted in the person of Nehemiah of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so just as Nehemiah is sent by the king now back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding, so King Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding. Verse 6 going on, Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, By the way, this is not Esther. Esther was uh, queen to King Ahasuerus, or the first Xerxes, before Artaxerxes. So this was, she's in between Ezra and Nehemiah, or a little bit before that. But the king said to me, the queen sitting beside me, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I watched this, I gave him a definite time. Nehemiah wasn't moving back to Judah and to Jerusalem for good. This was a specific amount of time. In fact, we, we find out from chapter 13, the first trip back was a 12-year trip. A set amount. I'm going to go back. I need, I'm probably going to need a few years there. So 12 years, and then I'll come back here to the capital and serve you. And it, ultimately, Nehemiah ends up going back for quite a bit longer. But 12 years, which reminds me, number six, the work of the Spirit involves a definite set span of time. The work of the Spirit is a set amount of time. As the prophet Joel promised, the Spirit was poured out on believers in these last days. It began there in the second chapter of Acts. There in Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, the Jews celebrating their Shavuot, Feast of Weeks. And on that 50th day, the Holy Spirit poured out on believers, and it all began. But it was a set amount of time, gang. The Holy Spirit was not poured out on all people prior to that. The Holy Spirit will be removed from this world. When is that going to happen? I don't know, but I'm thinking soon. He is only here in and among and functioning in the church for a set amount of time. The 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us currently the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is in and with the church that restraining influence. He is stemming the tide of evil, restraining the spirit of Antichrist until, 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says, until he's taken out of the way. Our removal. Rapture of the church. Man, when the church goes, the Spirit goes with us. And evil will come in like a flood. Nehemiah, he had agreed with the king on this set amount of time as well. And so we're going to see after he leaves, and it's interesting, Nehemiah will depart, go back to Persia, and it's after he leaves that evil rises up. Evil will rise up again in Jerusalem until Nehemiah has to come back and deal with that. Well, verse 7, I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me 
for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. Side note, I, I don't even have this listed in my notes, but I was thinking about this just this afternoon. Let letters be given me for the governors so they'll allow me to pass through. What is the proof of, of the Spirit? Well, one strong proof of the Spirit is the letter that we have. Let letters be given. Letters given through the Spirit, by the Spirit of God that allow Him to pass through. Well, anyway, in verse 8, just something to think about. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, and for the wall of the city, <coughs> excuse me, and for the house to which I go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Just like Ezra, Nehemiah, here he comes and now he's bearing resources. He's bearing gifts as the Spirit brings gifts. Hold that thought for a moment. Because here's where we find the wonderful decree. Mostly we're talking about here the work of the Spirit, but there's also the wonderful decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The date, and you might want to clarify this, I think I gave you the wrong year on Sunday. I think I said 444 B.C. It's 445. It was off by one year. I went back and double-checked my resources, and uh, the one that I, that I had checked was, was incorrect. 445 B.C. Well, how do we know that it was... 445 B.C. Well, here's where you check. You go back to the Word. And we're told there in verse 1 of chapter 2 that it was in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Well, King Artaxerxes, we know historically, came to power in 465 B.C. 20 years later is what? 445, not 444. So Nehemiah tells us it was the month of Nisan, which for us is March. Month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, 445 B.C. Now I shared Sunday, nearly a century earlier, 90 years roughly, the prophet Daniel received that great prophecy of a 490 year timetable for Israel. One that would begin ticking with the giving of a decree. What decree? This decree. This very decree in Nehemiah. Turn over to Daniel chapter 9 once again. Daniel chapter 9. If you've studied this before, it's so critical that we get this down and understand this. This, what I'm about to tell you tonight, and if you know this, this is one of the most powerful letters you can hand somebody in proof that the Bible is the Word of God. Alright? Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. 70 weeks. The word weeks, you Bible students know, it's in English, heptad. A heptad is a, is a, a series of seven. Like the word dozen means twelve, heptad means seven. That's what the word is. It's shavuim in the Hebrew. Seventy shavuim, or seventy sevens, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, verse 24 tells us 490 or 77 is the amount of time God has decreed for Israel until the end. Until everything is accomplished. Until all the promises are brought to bear for the people of Israel. See that in verse 24. So, verse 25, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that's Mashiach Nagid, there will be seven Shavuim 
and 62 Shavuim, it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. 7 and 62. Well, that's 69. But that's not the full 70. So we have a division here where the first 69 weeks are declared in this prophecy. There's going to be 7 Shavuim, 7 sevens, and then there's going to be 62 sevens. And after that, something is going to happen. Why is it divided up this way? Well, using the Hebrew calendar, which you have to when you're reading Hebrew. This is written in Hebrew. The Old Testament is Hebrew Scripture, so we use the Hebrew calendar of 360-day years. We do 365. The Hebrew calendar is 360, which is why we're off from theirs. Now, if you use that, the Hebrew calendar, and you account for leap years, which needs to be added into the equation... Seven Shavuim, 49 years, plus 62 Shavuim, 434 years, takes us precisely from March 14th, 445 B.C. to April 6th, 32 B.C. Or 32, sorry, 32 A.D. 32 A.D. What happened on April the 6th, 32 A.D.? On that day... Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey's colt. Exactly as prophesied in Scripture. Daniel said, until Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the Prince, it was a princely move. We we talked about this when we studied Matthew. Why was the humble, the meek Savior Jesus Christ, why on that day did He ride on the back of a donkey when with great grandeur and show, palm fronds laid down before Him, people shouting, Hosanna to the King! Why did He accept the worship and praise of the people? He was fulfilling the prophetic word, Mashiach the Prince would come after, after 400 and 83 years from the decree of Artaxerxes to the coming of Jesus and it fits perfectly now you should know some have tried to deny this some have tried to, tried to work it apart in fact Daniel is one of the most attacked books in the Hebrew scriptures because it is so powerful and it is so specific and enemies of the scripture there's nothing you can do with it but attack and try and undermine it the best that you can. So people have come along and they've said, well, no, no, it wasn't Artaxerxes' decree. There were other decrees given. Well, there were. We've read a few. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is Cyrus' decree to Zerubbabel to go rebuild the temple. Well, that was in 538. Well, 538 to 536, somewhere in there. Well, if you follow that, you say that was the decree, and you run it down 483 years, you don't get to Jesus. Hmm. Well, what about Darius? He reaffirms Cyrus' decree. There's another option. Ezra chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. That was in 521 B.C. That would throw off the prophecy as well. It would have to mean something else. Or 458 B.C., when Artaxerxes decreed to Ezra, again, to rebuild the temple. That's Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26. Why not choose one of these? Why, Rick, are you being so dogmatic about Artaxerxes' decree to Nehemiah being the decree? Does it just fulfill the prophecy you want to see it fulfilled? No, it's more than that. Artaxerxes' decree to Nehemiah is the only one of all possibilities that fits Daniel's prophecy literally. There are those who want to allegorize the thing, and so they'll pick a different one. 
the only one that has a literal fulfillment in terms of years and fits perfectly is Artaxerxes' decree to Nehemiah that we see in Nehemiah chapter 2. It was a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, not the temple. Cyrus to Zerubbabel, Artaxerxes to Ezra, Darius to Cyrus, it was all about going back and yeah, you can rebuild the temple, not the city, not the wall, the temple. Well, Daniel very clearly says it's a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Daniel says very clearly it would happen in times of distress. Nehemiah's day were times of great distress for the people. Even more so than Ezra's day. It had amped up. It had gotten worse. Ezra had stirred the pot. And Daniel even goes so far as to say, watch this, it will be built again with plaza, that means streets, and moat in times of distress. The word moat in Hebrew is harus. And harus means wall. It will be rebuilt. The wall. The wall. This is the decree. It fits historically. It fits literally. It fits perfectly. And watch this in verse 62. It says, Then after the 62 weeks... So now we're 483 years after Hebrew years after Artaxerxes gives that decree. We come down, Jesus comes in after the 62 weeks. So at a point following this time, the Messiah will be cut off. The word cut off in the Hebrew means killed and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary sometime after the 483 years have been completed and its end will come with a flood even to the end there will be war desolations are determined well Rick that's only 483 years what about the last 7 years Jerusalem was destroyed Israel wiped out the clock stopped God still has 7 years in which to complete all that he said he was going to complete in verse 24 that 7 year period has not yet happened there is a pause in between we've talked about that before The bottom line to understand tonight is simply this. From the wonderful decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Mashiach Nagid into the holy city, there would have to be 483 Hebraic years. Otherwise, the prophecy is false and the word is false. Messiah would have to be alive on the planet before this date. And Messiah would have to be killed or cut off after this date. Only one fits the bill. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Now, when you've got such a powerful proof as that, it is stunning to me that people yet reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. Why would they do it in the face of all that proof? Because it's not about the facts. It's about the faith. It's about saying, yes, I want Jesus. Yes, I want to be one of His own. Yes, I want to be restored to relationship with God. Well, Nehemiah secures this decree and he heads up to Jerusalem. Back in the book of Nehemiah. Flip back over there now. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the... Aren't you glad we're not doing chapter 3 tonight? Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the provinces. Maybe you're not glad. I don't know. Spencer probably would like to go ahead and do chapters 3, 4, 5, 6. Maybe 7 and 8. So stick around and we'll cover that ourselves. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. 
Now the king has sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. I'll talk about them in just a moment, but verse 9 is interesting to me. Because unlike Ezra, here comes Nehemiah with an impressive Persian entourage. He's got the king's horses, he's got the king's men, and they're all coming back with him. Do you remember what what Ezra said about this? Ezra chapter 8, verse 22. Ezra said, I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. Well, here comes Nehemiah, and he's got the king's blessing and the king's horsemen and the king's protection. He's coming back with all of that. So I guess Nehemiah was less spiritual than Ezra? Maybe this every man was less faithful than Ezra? Not so. Not at all. Here's what I want you to see. The circumstances were different. Circumstances were different. Ezra, he had vocally proclaimed the favor of God to protect those who, who, who sought him. Once he spoke that God was going to protect him, to go back on that would have violated integrity. It would have undermined the message. Ezra knew when he said it, he had to follow through with it. And it's wise for us to understand that. Jesus said in Matthew 5.37, Let your yes be yes, or your no be no. Anything beyond these is of evil. If you go out proclaiming something, better be ready to follow through. But that doesn't mean you don't proclaim, but you be sure if you're going to go out and say God is going to do this, you better be ready to walk in it. And Ezra had proclaimed that. So he needed to walk it out. He needed to show his faith. He needed to show his proclamation. Well, Nehemiah hadn't said anything of the sort. So when the king said, hey, I'll send some help with you, Nehemiah's like, okay, that, that works for me. Second thing to note, though, not only was the situation different, the gifts were different. The gifts were different. Remember that Nehemiah, in verse 8, he needed uh, timber for the king's forest to make beams for the gate of the fortress by the temple for the wall of the city of the house to which he went. Different gifts. Ezra brought back gold and silver and articles for the temple. Nehemiah brings back some different things to build the wall and to build the gates and to rebuild the fortress. But Nehemiah also had, listen to me, different gifts than Ezra had. Different gifts. Anna Maria and Naomi, my two precious new daughters, were arguing. I know it's a shock to all of you that that could happen. <laughs> arguing over a, a couple of gifts. Naomi has a bell dress, Walt Disney bell little dress. She's got the bell shoes, and, and when she walks in the bell shoes, they light up. She runs up and down the hallway, making those things light up all day long. Clock, 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 clock. Well, Anna Marie wanted a Disney dress, so we got online and searched around and found one really cheap on eBay. But new, Cinderella, the blue dress with sparkles. What she wants to dress up for here on Saturday? Wants to wear that. Anna Marie got a crown with her dress. Naomi does not have a crown. Belle didn't wear a crown. Cinderella wore. Cinderella was the princess who wore the crown, not Belle, right? So the dress comes. Anna Marie pulls it out. Oh look, Dad! She's holding it up. Oh look! Puts the crown on her head. Naomi goes. Well, I don't have a crown. I said, Yeah, but Anna Marie doesn't have shoes. Anna Marie hits me. Yeah, Dad, why don't I have shoes? I'm like, Different gifts. Different 
You got the bell with the shoes. You got the Cinderella with the crown. Go to your rooms. <laughs> Different gifts. And yet, you know, it's funny to me. We react. I, I got to show you this. In the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 details for us, it's one of the places, two or three different places in Scripture where we are given a listing of different gifts of the Spirit. And in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12, it says, Through the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And then Paul goes on to talk about gifts. Now remember, he precedes this by saying, don't think more highly of yourself than you should. And then he says, verse 4, just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, some have crowns, some have light-up shoes, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of it, since we have gifts that differ, listen, according to the grace given us. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If your gift is service, Paul writes, in your serving. He who teaches in his teaching. He who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I hadn't seen this before, but think about this. In the church, we are invited. The Word invites us. The Lord invites us to celebrate the gifts to be aware of our spiritual gifts and to use those gifts for the blessing of the body and for reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we are not told to criticize the different gifts and callings of other believers. But it happens so easily. And oftentimes, it happens out of our giftedness. What do you mean? The prophet thinks the merciful person is just too lenient. Well, that's not the way I would handle it, but say, the Lord, get your act together. And the merciful is going, oh no, give them some time. Different gifts. The giver thinks the servant should be giving more than just his time. Because the giver is gifted with liberality in his giving. And we'll look at the servant who says, look, I give, I give 24-7 of my time. That, that's, that's my gift. And the giver says, well, that, that should be your gift plus your 10%, Sonny. Because... <laughs> We should all be givers, right? The exhorter thinks the leader should be more encouraging. Leaders out there leading away and the exhorter saying, Hey man, come on, give us a break. Encourage the people. Because that's the gift that the exhorter has been given. And so oftentimes we can get wrapped up in our spiritual gift and be downing people who don't have our gift because they're different than we are. Maybe their ministry is different. Maybe they're doing something unique that you have not been called to do. Okay. Pray for them. Bless them. And function in your spiritual giftedness. We have this soulish tendency. I don't think it comes from the Spirit. It comes from our soul. We have this soulish tendency to judge the worth of someone else's gift based on our own gift. Instead of saying, Wow, you have the gift of mercy. Would you be around me because I don't and I need you around to help me with people that I have trouble being merciful to? <laughs> Praise God that our gifts are different. Well, back in Nehemiah, again, different situation. N- number seven, you can jot this down. We're trying to keep a list here. Are we on number seven? Am I giving you six things? Yes, good. Okay, number seven, the work of the Spirit intends different gifts for different people. 
The work of the Spirit intends different gifts for different people, and we should praise and celebrate our differences as one body. Now, verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem. There's one of the so's. I came to Jerusalem, and, and I was there for three days, and I arose in the night. I and a few men with me. I love this. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except for the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate. That, that's the Hinnom Valley. That's where he heads out here. In the direct, You remember the Hinnom Valley? Gehinnom, where we get the word Gehenna. Jesus used it for hell. It's interesting, the description, and I'm sure there's more here than I'll go into tonight, but he goes out by the valley gate into the Hinnon Valley in the direction of the Dragon's Well. Interesting. The Dragon's Well is by the Hinnon Valley. The dragon would be the dragon being a picture of Satan, Gehenna, the picture of hell. And on to the refuse, or the dung gate. Hell stinks, man. Inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then, verse 14, I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. This is a more beautiful place. But there was no place for my mount to pass. Why not? Too much debris. The wall's torn down. He couldn't even ride through with his horse, so he had to dismount at that point. So I went up, verse 15, at night by the ravine. The ravine there he's talking about now is the Kidron Valley. You can follow this on a map. It's easier to follow around. But he went up by the ravine in the Kidron Valley and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again, and I returned. Verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. I I just love this picture, gang. The work of the Holy Spirit implies moving in the unknown. Is this not how the Spirit moves? Nehemiah surreptitiously goes on an inspection tour. No one knew where he had come from or where he was going or what he was doing as he searched and he inspected the walls around the city. Jesus says the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nehemiah, here, a picture of the Comforter. He's inspecting. He's searching out like the Holy Spirit inspects and searches out hearts. And you don't know where He's coming from or where He's going, but man, if you're born of the Spirit, you're going with Him. You are blowing in the wind of the Spirit, following after Him, doing what He calls you to do. We don't tell the Spirit what to do. (laughs) We don't tell Him how to move. We don't determine the methods, plans, strategies, or even the blueprints. These are fluid with the Holy Spirit. He determines these things. If we are wise, we listen and follow after. Often, what the Spirit is doing in and among us is completely unknown to us until He decides to reveal it. And it's always at the right time, and it's always when He has readied us to follow after Him. And so, Nehemiah, after inspecting everything, he knows the lay of the land, he sees what's going on. Verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in. That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. What was it in Nehemiah, this cupbearer from Persia? 
Oh, he was a Jew, but still somewhat of an outsider. New man in town. No one knew where he'd come from or what was up with him. What was it about him that inspired such immediate motivation among the people? You you see it there in verse 17. He uses words like we and us as opposed to you. Nehemiah doesn't say to the people, you see the bad situation you're in? (laughs) The Jerusalem is desolate. Come! You need to build this wall. You got problems, people. You got issues. You better deal with them. That's not Nehemiah. We have problems. We have distress. Let us together do the work. Number nine in your listing there. The work of the Spirit intimates empathy and understanding. The work of the Spirit intimates empathy and understanding. He is so intimately acquainted with you, with me. Soul, spirit, body, we can start to sense He is in it with us. We are not doing this alone. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. No, I will come to you. And He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Helper, to be with you. You're not going to do this on your own. We will rebuild together. We are in this Together, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now, I went back and I looked at that verse. The words thoughts and words are added by the translators. To try and make it make more sense. Let me read it without those words. I like it better. We speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. Spiritual with spiritual. That is combining His Spirit with your Spirit. His Spirit with my Spirit, so that together... We are, as let's remind us, fellow workers. We work with the Spirit. He is working in and through us. He's not sending us out on a job saying, Good luck! See you in 2000! <laughs> Blessing! Go and be filled! You're on your own! He's in it with us. I love that. The Spirit of God is at work in us, alongside us, with us. Verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab, also Gashmu, that's his name, in its same name, you'll see it as Gashmu later on. When they heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, I'm going to talk about these guys in in coming studies. In fact, maybe on a Sunday morning we'll do this. But these three guys are the nefarious characters in the story. They'll begin their real campaign of terror along about chapter 4. But I've got to quickly give you the meaning of their names. Note this. Sanballat means strong or thorny. Strong, thorny guy. Tobiah means Yahweh is good. Yahweh is good. And Geshem, the Arab, his name just means rain. Put them all together and here's what you get. It's a picture of the enemy gang. The enemy is a thorn in the flesh who says, Yahweh is good, all the while seeking to rain on your parade. It fits. 
Because Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, or Gashmu, they are trying to function as insiders to undermine the work of Nehemiah. It will happen in the church. I don't want it to. I would love to say that in in the church of Jesus, every person walks in the spiritual man with the inner man, the inner woman. Every person lives by the fruit of the Spirit. Not so. For in the kingdom, remember Jesus said there's wheat that grows up. There are also tares that grow up with the wheat. Within any fellowship, and even within the larger body, there are those enemies, the thorn in the flesh, who, who says, Oh, Yahweh's good! Yah! Yahweh's good! But what they're really doing is trying to hide behind the truth that they do not want to see the Holy Spirit working here. And we could face it at the bridge. We have found, I'm not going to tell you who or when, but we have faced at the bridge a spirit of the flesh saying, I do not want to see the Holy Spirit at work in this place. Well, the work of the Spirit, number 10, can ignite opposition. The work of the Spirit can ignite opposition. The enemy obviously opposes anything the Spirit is doing. The natural man opposes the Spirit of God because he doesn't get what's going on. And that can happen from within the church. By the way, that's why when it comes to church leadership, the number one thing that I look for is the fruit of the Spirit. I pulled a list of nine fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Did I get them all? I think so. And I say, do we see those at work in this, in this man? Do we see those at work functioning in this person? If, if we do, that's a prime candidate for leadership. The fruit of the Spirit. Because all too quickly churches get political when we begin to lead in the natural as opposed to the spiritual. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. It is a perfect prescription. We don't deny the Holy Spirit because weird stuff has happened in the name of the Holy Spirit. We just look at every opportunity. We look at everything the Spirit might be involved with and we say, is this the Spirit or not? If it is, hold fast. If it's good, if we see the fruit of the Spirit, if we see Jesus exalted, we know this is the Holy Spirit at work. Hold fast. If it's not, abstain. But don't run away just because something's going on. We are not a people called to be afraid or standoffish of the Spirit of God. Especially in light of the taunts of the enemy. Let me give you number 11 and we'll finish for tonight. Wow, 11. The work of the Spirit, finally here at the very end of the chapter, instills a cupbearer's confidence. It's where we began. Nehemiah was a cupbearer who was confident. And the work of the Spirit instills such confidence in us. Listen to this, verse 20. I love this response. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they get after, they ridicule, they're, they're trying to tear down. Nehemiah answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we His servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Yes! Confident response. Strong response. Luke says, in, or Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, 11, Do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you need to say. You don't worry about it. You just rely on the Spirit of God. 
He'll give you confidence to respond. The confidence of this cupbearer. I love this. He doesn't give the tauchers the time of day. He immediately responds to them. He effectively shuts them down. What does he say? He says, you have no portion. You have no right. You have no memorial. Take those in reverse. A memorial gang speaks of the past. You have no history here, Nehemiah says. You have no historic entitlement to Jerusalem. It's interesting today because the Arabs will say, the Arab world around Jerusalem, Palestinian authority will say, Jerusalem's been ours from time immemorial. Not so. Not so. Jerusalem has been the Jewish people's from time immemorial. And the Bible and history are absolutely clear about that. You have no memorial here, Nehemiah says. You have no right. Well, the right speaks not of the past, but it speaks of the present. An immediate claim. You have no right to be here right now. And you have no portion. A portion speaks of the future, of a coming inheritance. These are powerful words, spirit spoken words through Nehemiah. You got no past, you got no present, you got no future. No memorial, no right, no portion. And gang, listen to me, in Jesus Christ, we have all three. All three. We have a memorial, his death on the cross. We look back to the memorial. Man, by his death, I have salvation. We have a right. The seal of His Holy Spirit in our lives right now, today. And we have a portion, an inheritance we are to receive when Jesus Christ calls us home. That is the cupbearer's confidence. Ephesians chapter 1. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Gang, that is our confidence. Confidence in the wall. The wall that the Spirit builds around us. A wall of strength. A wall of encouragement. A wall of confidence. We'll see the Spirit do more building. In fact, we get into chapter 3 and it is a map of how the Holy Spirit builds confidence into believers. It's wonderful. We'll get there on Sunday. Let me end with this verse and we'll pray. Once again, Psalm 139, You have enclosed me behind and before and laid Your hand upon me. Such knowledge. Oh, it's too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from Your Spirit? Certainly not here, Lord. We know Your Spirit is here. And we are so comforted tonight and we have a new confidence, a revived confidence. I and myself, Father, just to be reminded of my past, present, and future in You. The memorial, the right, the portion that I, that I have in You, Jesus. And Your Spirit, even tonight, is brought to remembrance what You said to us. This is wonderful. Lord Jesus, I pray, would You bring more of Your Spirit that we might have more praise and adoration for You. That there might be more power in this place. Father, power not to impress. Power not to thrill. But but power, Lord, to walk out lives worthy of the calling. Power, Lord Jesus, to do what You've called us to do as a fellowship and as people. 
Thank You for Your Spirit. Thank You for the comfort. Thank You for the confidence, Jesus. We pray in Your precious name tonight. Amen.